Hey everyone, this is your host, Guns, and welcome to another episode of the Seed Table Podcast, where we try to make sense of what is going on in European technology. My guest today is Matt Holt. Matt is a growth and development coach who works with startup founders and other leaders to help them navigate their way back to what really matters, both in their life and their work. Before that, he was the program director of Techstars Startup Week, where he helped catalyze startup ecosystems in cities and countries around the world. Matt was introduced to me by my friend Ian Hathaway, and I'm so glad we made this happen. He's one of the most thoughtful people I know, so it was an absolute pleasure to have him on the podcast. Our conversation revolved around a whole bunch of topics. We covered Matt's life story and how he became a coach for startup founders, why mental health awareness matters, the dangers of self-medicating when in pain, why Matt calls himself a serial empathizer, how and why uh, develop a mindfulness practice, Matt's work running Startup Week, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Matt, thank you so much for jumping on the CTO podcast with me. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. Oh, thank you so much. It's really good to be here with you. Let's dive straight into it. How does it feel to have a panic attack while skydiving? It does not feel good, <laughs> to put it mildly. You know, it's one of those things where I had had some panic attacks, but I didn't know what they were before that incident. And having it in the moment was the most terrifying experience of my life by far. Yeah, I, I can bet. But a lot had happened for you to get to that point. So maybe walk the listeners through your story just for some context. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I grew up in a small city in Northwest Iowa called Sioux City. And it was a childhood you know, kind of a, a typical American childhood. Uh, in 1980, my parents divorced when I was five years old. Grew up in a single parent home for a few years before my mom got remarried. But I was, I kind of grew up as a scared kid. A lot of fear, a lot of anxiety. I did well in school. And in some ways that made me a target of other kids. So I was bullied a fair amount. And uh, so I just carried this fear and anxiety with me into middle school, which, you know, here in, <laughs> I don't know where it's like in other parts of the world, but that, you know, 12 to 14 year old age uh, is pretty brutal. It's like Lord of the Flies. Was able to develop some street smarts, which kept me safe, but I still didn't feel whole. I didn't feel safe. And so there was early inklings of a mental disorder, a mental illness. If, if, there had been more knowledge at the time. I probably would have been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder when I was young, but there just wasn't much awareness. wasn't really talked about. Uh, in high school, I got a little bit better, broke out of my shell a little more, started to be, become more social, joined things like you know band, was in school plays. And for the most part, I thrived in high school. But then things took a turn for me when I got to, to university. Uh, that's when the anxiety really started to kick in. There's just something, the more I've learned about it, something happens in that 19, 20, 21 
time frame for people with uh, a mental disorder where things start to change. And that was typical of my story. I became more afraid, more withdrawn. Luckily, I met my wife the very first day of university. And we've been together ever since, 27 years now. Uh, but things really started to change once I got out of, out of university. When I got into the working world, there were times when I would go to work and I would vomit. The very first thing I would do, I would have, I actually thought that I had either an allergy to milk because I was eating milk and cereal in the morning. I uh, didn't realize, didn't put the connection there that it was actually anxiety that was causing me to, to have this physical reaction. For the most part, things were, you know, I could hold it together. It wasn't terrible. There was some obsessive compulsive disorder that was mixed in. Didn't Again, I didn't really understand what it was. Just that my brain made me do certain things. When I was a kid, in order to feel safe, I would lock the door a certain amount of times or, you know, I wouldn't trust what I just saw and I'd have to go check things again. Even though rationally I knew, okay, you did that. You don't have to do it again. I just had this urge to go do whatever that repetitive behavior I had to do it again. And that leads us to the, the story we opened with here is... When I was 25 years old, I decided I wanted to get over my fear of heights. So I, for some reason, decided skydiving was going to be the, the activity that, that got me over it. So I organized a group of people uh, at work and I said, hey, I'm going to go do this skydiving thing. Do you want to join me? And I think it was about six or seven people who said yes. And we all went and took the classes to do a static line jump. So it's different. A lot of times people, their their first time experiencing skydiving, they actually do a tandem jump. So there's not much training involved. And really the person you're strapped to is running the show. Uh, but I wanted to go, you know, it's my nature to to do things, kind of go all the way on things. And, and so I did the static line. I went through the training and I was committed to being the first person in the group to jump. So on that day, after, after two days of training, we go up in the airplane and we get to 3,300 feet or you know, roughly 1,000 meters. And I look out, the, the door opens to the airplane and I'm sitting, it's a really tiny airplane, and I'm sitting kind of with my knees tucked up and I look out once they open the door and I'm like, there is no way I can do this. You know, everything I learned, all my training, just out of my head. But something told me, you have to jump. You have to do this. Because if I didn't, they would actually have to turn around, land the plane uh, so that the other people could jump. So I was like, okay, you just got to do this. I step out. There's a little step right by the door. I put my foot on there. And then what we were supposed to do is hold on to the wing. So there's a strut underneath the wing. And basically, you hold on, let your feet off, and you're hanging like Superman. And then you, you're supposed to look up and let go. Well, in that moment, I started to have a panic attack. I couldn't breathe. My heart felt like it was going to jump out of my chest. And my only option was to let go. So having the most terrifying moment and not being able to resolve it by climbing back into the airplane, I was past that point. The only way to get to safety was to let go. And it only took you know, something like a minute, a half or two minutes to, to get to the ground after I let go. But I completely blanked out. I had no, my brain just wasn't functioning. 
Luckily, there was a radio on my shoulder so that they could tell me how to steer and how to come to the landing target. But it was the longest two minutes of my life. I just could not wait. To, I, the whole time I'm thinking, just get me down, just get me down. And I'm trying to catch my breath and I couldn't, couldn't get any oxygen into my body. And as I came into the landing zone, they, they did a great job. Like I could see the circle, <laughs> I'm coming right into it. And all of a sudden I hear flare, flare, flare. Well, that's how you slow your descent. You pull the handles on the parachute. It stops, it slows you down, and then you're able to land and walk. I didn't do that. I had no idea what flare meant in that moment. So I hit the ground very, very hard and ended up rupturing a disc in my back. I was able to get up and walk. So, you know, at first I thought, am I paralyzed? I wasn't. I could get up and there was a stinging sensation throughout my body. Um, and so I, I essentially walked away from that event. Uh, a week later, I'm at work, the same, you know, same group of people that I work with that went and trained with me to skydive. And I'm having a conversation with one of my colleagues. And out of the blue, I have that exact same panic attack that I had skydiving. No reason at all. Nothing triggered it. We were just having a normal conversation. And then I'm uh, having a panic attack. So I quickly excused myself and ran to the bathroom. And in the moment, I actually thought I was having a heart attack. I couldn't breathe. I had chest pains. It was like all these symptoms. And I'm like, what is going on? It took about 10 minutes and all of the, that sensation went away. And I was just left wondering, what, is, what was that? What is going on? Immediately, I thought, it's something physical. So, you know, not much happened after that. But then what, I start, what started to happen was I'd have one panic attack a week. And then it started to become where it was, I was having one panic attack a day. And then going a little further, having, you know, two to three panic attacks a day. Still convinced in my head that it was a, something physical. And not only was that happening, but also my obsessive compulsive disorder was kicking in to try to make me feel safe, but it was actually making things worse. So I became... I started to do more rituals to counteract the, the panic attacks. But as I did more rituals, it made the anxiety go up. So it was the stair step effect. Yeah, cyclical. And, you know, the, the, for me, the OCD turned from the rituals more into intrusive thoughts. And I am a person who hates violence. I really, like, I have a visceral reaction to, to violence. As a kid, whenever I would see violence, and I grew up in a very violent neighborhood, my reaction was to just get as far away from it as possible. But now my brain was putting ideas into my head that were violent. And that's kind of the irony of OCD is it takes the one thing you really, really dislike, but it makes you fixate on it. So it could be as simple as, you know, I'd see a trash can, a uh, trash bin, and uh, want to, my brain would say, hit them in the head. So I might be taught, have, you know, being in a work meeting and my brain is fixated on this trash bin and hitting somebody with it. Or I might be in my kitchen uh, cooking and I have a knife and my brain is saying, you know, stab them. Now, my wife would be standing next to me and my brain would say, stab your wife. And I'd be like, no, no, I didn't know how to, how to deal with that. And it led me to believe that I was a bad person. It led me to believe that I was a monster who, who, if, you know, if, if somebody is kind and compassionate, they don't have thoughts like this. That's what I, what I was really struggling with. 
So I started to self-medicate. I would have panic attacks during the day. And then I found that when I would get home from work, I would have a drink and my anxiety would go away. And again, I didn't call it anxiety. I just thought, oh, the, the alcohol must be calming my, my heart. I'd make up these excuses. And then it got to a point where I was really struggling. So I went and saw a doctor. And I saw multiple doctors. I, you know, again, I thought this was a cardiac issue. So I saw cardiologists and I was hooked up to machines. I actually wore a monitor for a month. And every time I, I had what I would call a heart episode, I was to click a button and it would record it. So after a month, I turned the machine in and they say, there's nothing wrong with you. And to me, it was maddening because everything that I was feeling was re it was real. And so for them to tell me there's nothing wrong with your heart, when my heart felt like it was about to crack and I would have shooting pains through my neck and my left arm would go numb, everything that people have when they have a heart attack, and then for them to say, there's nothing wrong with you, uh, that was even more distressing and put me further down into a, a very dark hole. Finally, to, to kind of sum this all up, Part of my obsessive compulsive intrusive thoughts was the idea that I was going to die when I turned 27. And I knew this was irrational, but that idea got into my head because a lot of my idols, rock, these rock stars, died when they turned 27. And I would tell myself, you're not a rock star, you're not famous, you don't do drugs. Yes, you're drinking, but you're, you know, you're not doing this destructive behavior. It just was this nagging voice, you're gonna die, you're gonna die. So two weeks before my 27th birthday, my wife comes up to me and says, I'm pregnant. And I didn't know how to process that because I was in, I was very deep into crisis. And so the thought of having uh, a child come into the world while I'm in crisis was, I just couldn't process it. It was so difficult. I, it was a wake up call for me. So I went and saw my doctor and I said, I have to get this solved. And I think it's mental. I don't think this is physical. Uh, so we talked about it and he said, no problem. There's, there's a pill for that. Didn't explain what the pill was. Just said, take this. Let me know how you feel. Four days into taking that pill, I started to have all of the severe side effects that that pill creates. My vision was distorted. I was, there was all of these things that were just like, I, it just compounded the problem. So I ended up after four days, stopping the medication, just cold, just stop taking it. That's actually the worst thing you can do, but I wasn't prepped for it. Nobody told me, don't stop taking this. If you have trouble, come see us because we're going to switch things. Instead, it was, you're off on your own. And so I just took myself off the medication. This is a week before my 27th birthday. So February of 2002. Needless to say, I spiral out of control. I'm barely able to function, barely able to get out of bed. On Thursday, February 27th at 7 p.m., I it was so debilitating that I went to bed. I just couldn't take it. I just said, I'm going to crawl into bed. I don't know when I'm going to get out. And as I was laying there in bed, I heard two men have a conversation in my living room. And I knew there was nobody there. And that scared the crap out of me. I don't know how long I laid there, but eventually I fell asleep. And I woke up the next morning, February 28th. It was a Friday. No, actually, I'm sorry. I'm getting the dates wrong here. 
it was actually March 1st. So Thursday was the 28th, Friday, March 1st, because my birthday was Saturday, March 2nd. And so I went into work on that Friday, knowing I shouldn't. And as soon as I walk into the room to where my cubicle was and I sit down, there's a line of people waiting to talk to me about their projects. At the time, I was a uh, graphic designer and it was a Friday and a lot of people had projects they wanted to get out the door, especially at the beginning of the month. Hey, what are we going to do on this? I stood up and I turned around. My boss's cubicle was directly behind me. And I looked at her and I said, I have to leave right now or I'm going to hurt someone. And she just gave me this blank stare. She did not know how to react. She had never seen this behavior in me before. So this was a complete shock to her. And I grabbed my bag and I walked out the door. And as I'm walking out the door, I called my wife and I said, I need you to meet me at the hospital. She didn't ask any questions. She just got, she said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to the, the mental hospital that's here in Omaha. And uh, she met me there in the emergency room. And we were met by the intake nurse, and then a psychiatrist came in. And the question they asked me was, if we send you home right now, will you be safe? And it was a real moment of clarity for me. And I, that was the moment I knew I needed to be honest. From this point on, I could no longer lie about what was happening. I had to tell the truth every step of the way. And I just looked at them and I said, no, don't send me home. And they said, okay. So they took me up to uh, the, the mental health ward at the hospital. It was an entire floor. And in that, that was the toughest moment for me, honestly, because my wife walked up from, with me and I had to look at her and know that I may never walk out of that hospital again, that the only thing that I could do was walk through those doors. I just had to say goodbye. And I didn't know if that was a forever goodbye, knowing that she was going to be on her own, raising our child on, on her own. So that was really, really difficult. So after I got, you know, I, I went, I was admitted, they showed me my room. I met with the doctors and I was in such a bad place, like no, zero hope. I didn't think that, I thought, I actually really thought my life was over at that point and that I'd be institutionalized for the rest of my life. So I met with the doctor and back to the honesty stand, the thing that I mentioned about being honest, I said, what do I got to lose? Like they need to know everything that I've been thinking, feeling. And it was the first time I told anybody any of this in two years, not a, not a word to anyone what I was going through. And I just laid it all out on the table. And I remember there was a doctor and then two, oh, what do you call them? Like internists, like, you know, they were interns, doctors. I know I'm butchering that, but they were also there. And so I, I had this, like, I'm going to be exposed right now. And I think these people are probably going to recoil me or recoil from me, put me in a straitjacket, and uh, say, good luck, bud. So I told them the whole story, everything that I was experiencing, and actually the opposite happened. It was, I felt compassion from them. And there was a look in the doctor's eyes and he said, Matt, you're, we're going to help you. You're going to get better. So there was this release in my body that I could feel. All the weight that I had been carrying for all those years just lifted. And for the first time, I had hope. 
And it was all because I was able to tell my story to somebody and have them not react with repulsion, but instead react with compassion. So that was a real key moment for me. And they said, here's the medication we'd like you to take. We're going to monitor you the next couple of days to see how it goes. So I take the medication. I go to bed in the hospital that night and I wake up on my 27th birthday. And I remember looking up at the ceiling in my hospital room and I did a real quick self-check. Okay, when's the panic attack going to start when it didn't start? Okay, where are the intrusive thoughts? They weren't there. And I just had this moment like, my God, it worked. This is working. And I sat up in bed and looked around and, and I thought, okay, let's, let's see how this goes. Like it, it just was a, I don't, it was it, it, I literally reborn. It was like Matt had died a spiritual death on the 26th. And this new person was reborn on my 27th birthday. And I left the hospital on Monday. So it was only a couple of days. The medication was able to correct what was going on pretty quickly. I, I tend to be sensitive to medication. So it didn't take much time for it to start to kick in. Didn't mean everything went away. It was still there, but I it it was it was working. And I was committed to sticking with the plan. I knew I couldn't take myself off the medication because that's that the mechanism that really makes you spiral out of control. I had that knowledge now. Also, I was committed to seeing my therapist so that I could start to build in, you know, not use medication as my only method, but what are other things that I could, I could use to counteract the anxiety and the OCD. And then a big piece for me was a mindfulness practice. There was, I'd always felt there was a hole. There was a spiritual hole, a disconnect, and I needed something, but nothing really fit the bill until I did an investigation into Buddhism. And that's where it started to connect, like training your mind through the act of meditation, watching what arises and, you know, just, just working with who you are. What is your true nature? We'll get into meditation in a bit, but it's ironic that you, I'm not sure if ironic is the word, but you ended up dying at 27 anyway. That was your prediction, right? Yeah. 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 It, it was, it was uh, obviously a metaphorical death. And it was, for me, a big piece of my life was my ego. So even though I was going through all of this, uh, this trauma and crisis, I still had a very high opinion of myself. And I didn't understand that the voice of ego is just a voice, it's not who you are. I didn't make that connection. And then that's what led me to being in the hospital was very humbling because I completely surrendered. And in the moment of surrender, ego, while still there, was no longer important because I knew I needed to get healthy. And then through meditation and mindfulness, I got to watch the ego in action. Yeah, 100%. 100%. So you were convinced, just convinced it was physical for, for years, but then you said something clicked and you realized it was mental. First, why were you convinced it was physical? You didn't even consider it was mental. And what happened that you clicked? Yeah, the, the 
not being able to connect it to something mental was because there was a complete lack of awareness around the issue. Nobody talked about mental health. Anybody who had mental health issues, was there was a stigma. They were crazy. And so I didn't want to be lumped into that pool of crazy people. And it just, I didn't even know. I wasn't even aware. There, you know, I had seen some news programs about people with OCD. I remember being in a teenager and we had a show here in the States called 2020. And they did a profile on several people who had debilitating OCD. And I could see myself in them. And that's, that really, really scared me. And so I had a, a natural aversion. I don't want to be like those people. So I'm going to do whatever I can to convince myself I am not one of them. And then what clicked for me that it was, it was actually mental is, and it was a hard, it was a hard realization. One of my, the doctors that I went to see, a cardiologist, when he was saying, there is nothing wrong with your heart, you have actually a really strong, healthy heart. And he said, I think this is mental. And I was so offended. I just was like, screw you. You don't know what you're talking about. You know, you're, you're an asshole. I it just, I had that reaction. But it, the, the longer between that, that appointment with him and leading up until the point of my wife telling me she was pregnant, it just kept coming up. And at first it was resistance. And then it kind of shifted into some acceptance. Like, ooh, I think, I think this may be right. And I started to put some things together, especially my family history. I had, there's a lot of alcoholism in my family. And when I started to put the pieces together, it made sense why they were alcoholics, because they were dealing with their own mental health issues. And the only way to overcome it was to self-medicate. You know, I had both of my grandfathers were alcoholics. I've got aunts and uncles who are alcoholics. And so I started to see, oh, I was self-medicating. That's what was going on here. And so then when my wife said she was pregnant, it was that forcing mechanism to say, we need to do, you know, we, we need to give this a real hard look and go down that path and explore it. I have a very similar family situation with alcoholism, essentially. So and for some reason, and I don't know why, I, I've been always been very, very aware of that fact. So I usually stay away uh, from alcohol. Most times, of course, <laughs> not, not definitely not perfect, but can definitely relate to sort of this struggle of, I don't know, thinking it's your destiny or I'm not sure if that's the right way to put it. Yeah. You know, one of the things when you said that destiny, it was actually, I was pre-programmed to believe that if I drank, that I would become an alcoholic. My mother stopped drinking because she could see she was going along that path. So she stopped drinking right after my parents got divorced. I was about five. And as I grew up, I was always told, if you drink, you're going to become an alcoholic. That was the narrative. My, you know, my mom, she, she got remarried. Neither, there was no alcohol in the house. I also grew up in a neighborhood where there was a lot of alcoholism. I had friends, and you could see what alcohol was doing to their, to their family. And so I abstained for a very long time. And then when I got to be, you know, I would say in high school or at university, that's when I started to drink. 
And I found that I didn't have an addiction to it. I could drink and not feel that craving, that need. So it kind of broke the narrative. But what happened was it wasn't a craving, it was a crutch. And so when I had that, those feelings of anxiety and OCD, I needed that crutch to stop it. And then after all of this, my relationship with alcohol changed. I don't use it. I, I, I still drink. I love whiskey. I love wine. But I have a completely different relationship for it. Actually, it's the opposite. If I feel anxious or if I'm feeling down, I've never been diagnosed with depression. But I notice there's moments, there's days where I do feel depressed. I avoid alcohol altogether. I can't have it. It's like, nope, keep that away because it makes me feel worse. So for me, anyway, it was discovering a, a new relationship with it and being honest. 100%. So let's go back to that physical, mental thing. Um, mm -hmm. Like the click didn't come because there was a complete lack of awareness of what mental health was. And I think, or it's it's safe to say that there has been some improvement compared to, let's say, a couple of decades before, but we're not quite there. So why do you think mental health is so under-discussed, particularly in tech, which mm -hmm. is what we like used to work for tech stars. I work yeah. in tech, so it's sort of the context. Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I've I've seen the awareness, you know, honestly, over the last two or three years, it's 10 times what it was before. I think there's enough recognition and there have been enough stories of people who have been destroyed by mental illness enough, especially in the tech sector, founders who have taken their life because they didn't see any way out. They didn't have any outlets. They have so much pressure that's put upon them, especially if you've raised capital, you really feel like you have to perform. I think one of the statistics that, you know, maybe I think I got this right, but it's, it's five times more prevalence of mental illness among founders than any other group. So for some reason, and they can't, they don't quite know what, what it is, but it, it does, entrepreneurship does attract people who could be predisposed with mental illness. There's obviously the conditions of being a founder that, that lead to it. But what you're seeing is uh, a lot of people are getting a lot more vocal about this particular topic. Two years ago, I made the commitment to share my story publicly. I would have one-on-one -on -one conversations with people and oftentimes find that you know, they would say, wow, like, here's what I'm going through. I've never shared this with anybody. So I found that, you know, that felt very powerful. But then I made a commitment to, well, if I get invited to speak somewhere, I need to speak about this topic. I need to share my own story. And there were a couple of things behind that. First, I, I used to be terrified of public speaking. If you had told me when I was going through my mental health crisis that someday I'd be on stage in front of hundreds of people, I, that would have uh, just boggled my mind. So I made a commitment to speaking publicly. I knew the only way to get over that fear, you know, it's, it's a lot different than skydiving, <laughs> was to put myself up on stage and be vulnerable. So in 2018, I was invited to speak at a conference uh, just north of Toronto. And initially they said, you know, can you speak about community building? Because that's what I was primarily involved in when I was with Techstars. 
And I said, well, yeah, I can come talk about that. But what if I shared my, my journey with mental illness? And the organizer said, that would be wonderful. We're actually putting a big emphasis on mental health and mental wellness during our conference. So I'm starting to see more of that awareness being built. Organizers of conferences, it's been hard with conferences during COVID, but I think COVID has really shone a light on, on mental health. Because so many people are isolated, it can't be ignored anymore. So I'm, I'm really seeing this massive shift towards awareness and destigmatizing that particular topic. Much more people, I, I just think so many people have been touched by mental illness. Either they've experienced it or somebody in their family has experienced it, that it can no longer be ignored. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever skydive again? No. <laughs> <laughs> That makes sense. No, nope. I got that out of my system. Never doing that again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have one. Like, I have. A, I don't have many rules, but I have a couple. No helicopters and no small planes. Yeah. Those are my rules. <laughs> so yeah, and no rules. bungee jumping. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so your Twitter bio says serial empathizer. Why do you think it's so important to be empathic? Well, it's what's. So I, I consider empathy my superpower. And I recognize, you know, some people just don't have that capability. But I think those of us who are empathetic need to exercise it. One of the things that I experienced early in my career was that uh, a lot of the people that I worked for, my employers, would recognize that I was very sensitive, but would try to beat it out of me. They would say, Matt, you're too sensitive. You got you to get thicker skin. You got to toughen up. You'll never survive in the business world. And that hurt because it made me feel like I was uh, deficient. And that, you know, obviously I wasn't a tough person. I didn't like violence. Never got in a fight. I had a real difficult and hard time standing up for myself because I was so sensitive. So I, I struggled with that. And it wasn't until many years later probably in my late 30s, when I discovered that sensitivity is what makes me who I am. It allows me to walk into a room and pick up on energy that other people are not aware of. And so had I followed their advice and tried to overcome my, you know, being sensitive and be tough and mean, like they suggested, I wouldn't be who I am. And so sensitivity leads me to have it, to being hugely empathetic and being able to put myself into the shoes of almost anyone. Even if I don't agree with their viewpoint, oftentimes I can just ease into their point of view and see it through their lens. And I think for me, that's been very, very powerful. So I try to, at every moment, cultivate empathy. And if others are you know, interested in learning how to be empathetic, I think it's, it's worth the investigation. So we're recording this on Thursday, November 6th, which is two days after the U.S. elections. And this is a time in which empathy is that something we definitely need as a society, I think. Do you have a simple exercise someone can do to start practicing empathy? Like, how would you point them in the right direction, at least? Yeah, I, I think that... Simple mindfulness exercises can start to lead to that having that empathy. And, and really all, all mindfulness is. It's not some wooey, 
you know, it, I mean, oftentimes it's, it, you think of people dressed in robes sitting around going home all the time, but it's not that there's actually a lot of really good brain science that has gone into researching mindfulness. So if you could do really simple, maybe just a five minute meditation, two minutes, if, you know, if that's what you feel comfortable with, but just watching your thoughts arise, that can help inform how you're approaching someone else. Because oftentimes what we do is we, we all have this autopilot, this operating system that we just immediately kick into. If you go in that direction immediately, you're going to miss the empathy piece. So if you're really interested in knowing why does the person over there feel the way they do, you first have to stop your, that process and say, what am I feeling right now? And what is my automatic response to whatever they're feeling? You have to have that recognition. And so if you're immediately jumping into the voice of judgment, like, oh, you're an idiot for thinking that way, you can't have empathy. So you have to interrupt that process. And through mindfulness and meditation, sitting quietly, watching what comes up, what arises, and being able to name it, that's the key. Naming your emotions in the moment. You know, one of the things they talk about, especially in coaching, the profession that I'm in, is widening the gap between stimulus and response. So you're stimulated or triggered by something. Information is coming in. Instead of automatically reacting, you know, it's like the old thing they'd say, like, take a breath, count to 10. It's essentially what you're doing. Oh, I'm, I'm feeling something right now. This is uncomfortable. I'm going to stop and instead of react, I'm just going to take a minute to process it. And then when you do that, you can lean in and say, all right, what, what truly is their perspective? And why are they reacting the way they are? And a lot of times you'll notice if you do this long enough that they're just operating on autopilot. They haven't done the, the mindfulness work. And so if you have two people who are operating that way, of, of course, empathy is, is hard to come by. Yeah, everyone's operating in autopilot. Or another way to put it is, or that I, I like to use is, everyone's fighting a battle you know nothing about. Uh, so that's something I, I try to keep uh, in mind. Going back to, to mindfulness and, and meditation, I've tried to develop a mindfulness habit two or three times. And the one I would I, I got sort of closer is this year when COVID hit. And it really, I think I did about 60 or 70 sort of days of mindfulness and meditation, but then I stopped. What would you recommend to someone like me who is at that stage, like, they sort of logically know that mindfulness and meditation is is important for us, mm -hmm. but I haven't clicked yet, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> it's a great question because med cultivating a meditation practice is really hard. It is not easy. If you, on paper, it sounds super simple. Sit on a cushion for 20 minutes. That's it. But during that time, there's so much discomfort. There's so many things that you're thinking about. And when you go into meditation with the expectation that you're not supposed to think, you're doing it wrong. So I would say it's about changing your expectations and, you know, and your reactions to meditation. For me, it took about three years of consistent meditation for it to kick in. Right. Three years in our lifetime, we want instant gratification. That's what we're programmed. Even if you work out, you're going to see results in a month or two. When it comes to meditation, oftentimes it's just knowing 
that what it's doing is working its way, it's working through the process and committing to that. So a lot of this comes down to putting in structure into your daily habits. So I'm, you know, let's, let's take you as an example saying, I'm going to prioritize this. And in doing so, maybe investigate your, what are your expectations around meditation? You, maybe you meditated for 70 days and there, you didn't feel a thing. Nothing changed for you. That's okay. It can be like that. But instead, what I would encourage is say, now, now shift into a phase where you're going to, again, commit to doing it. If you miss a day, that's fine, right? You always come back to the process or the practice. There's always tomorrow. And when you do it, just sit there and be an observer of your thoughts. The thoughts aren't going to go away. Instead, just say, I'm going to become an observer and not a participant. And when you do become a participant, which you will, it's just shifting back to observer and just having that, you know, holding it lightly back and forth between participant and observer. And over the years, the observer is going to win out and it'll allow you the real benefit of meditation is not in those 20 minutes that you're sitting there. It's what you're able to bring out into the world with you. The thing that it did for me, that not only being able to notice where my thoughts are coming from and go, oh, there you are, right? Oh, there you are, intrusive thought. Not, not latching onto it, not reacting and feeling like I'm a horrible person. Same thing with ego. In meditation, I saw ego come up all the time. I'd just be sitting there, you know, breathing away. And then all of a sudden, oh, you deserve this. You deserve a promotion. You deserve a raise. Well, for a long time, I thought, yeah. Yeah, I do. And I'd go down the rabbit hole with that thought. And then when I shifted to observer, I'd go, oh, that's just my ego. That's not who I am. So that's where it, it plays out. When you can pull the, those learnings from the cushion into your daily life, when you're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation and you just do a quick check-in and go, where's this voice coming from? Oh, I'm, I'm bragging about myself right now. I, my ego wants to be recognized. That's where the value is. Also, in moments of chaos, when thing, it looks like everything's on fire around you, you can use the, that moment of breathing on the cushion to center yourself. And you can actually use breathing exercises in, in that moment. Nobody knows you're doing this, but just a deep breath and doing it slowly and slowly letting it out. Oftentimes, when, we, when we're feeling stress, we actually increase our heart rate and breathe more shallow. And you want to slow your heart rate and bring in more oxygen into your body. So training yourself in those 20 minutes will help you when things really get bad and really get stressful. Thank you for that. Super, super helpful. I'm going to give it another try and let you know how it goes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you were a global director of Tector Startup Week. And we'll get into sort of what you're doing now in a bit. But that's a job many would love to have but you left it to start something new. Uh, so what's the best framework maybe you'll come across for, for or for, yeah, for when to leave something? Yeah, well, let me, I'll, I'll back up a little bit and then get into that framework. So just a little bit of my, you know, the backstory to my journey to Techstars. I was without a job. This was in January of 2014. I had just been let go 
uh, from a job. And uh, I was recruited for a job in Boulder, Colorado. And I live in Omaha, Nebraska. So I drove out to Boulder to interview for this job. And while I was headed out there, my the headhunter actually said, hey, while you're in town, you should meet this guy. And uh, it happened to be Andrew Hyde, who was the founder of Startup Weekend. So Andrew invited me up. He was he was doing these dinner parties where he'd invite rant, you know, just strangers up to his house uh, to have these conversations and a good meal, which he would which he would cook. And so I had this thought. I said, I really should just stay in my hotel and prepare for my interview. But I was also knew the power of saying yes. And so I, I just, I was like, screw it. Go, say yes to this. You believe in serendipity. Go up and have a good time. You don't need to stress about the interview. So I drove up to his house and it was, you know, it was a great dinner. Him and I got to talking about the work he had done, you know, creating Startup Weekend. I was talking about some volunteer work that I was doing for an event called the Do Lectures. Do Lectures started in Wales and then eventually was brought to the States. And so I was really interested in community building. And I was talking about that. And he said, well, would you be interested in helping me with this other thing I'm working on called Startup Week? And I said, tell me about what it is. And he did. And he, you know, I said, well, I'm, I'm actually in town to interview for this job. And he said, you don't want that job. <laughs> uh, and he, he right. turned out to, he was right. He was right. I didn't, I, I was offered the job and I immediately turned it down. And I kept having this nagging thought like, oh, this startup week thing sounds really, really cool. I had an awareness of startups had worked with startups in, in when I was doing ad agency work, but I wanted to do more, especially community building. So fast forward five months later, Startup Week went under the Up Global umbrella. Up Global at the time was running Startup Weekend, which Andrew had sold to them. We joined their group. And then a year later, we were acquired by Techstars. And so I guess for another three and, three and a half years, I ran Startup Week. Worked with 90 different cities all around the world to put on that event. Worked with grassroots organizers. And that kind of, I'll touch on that later and how that led to me becoming a growth and development coach for founders. And then a year and a half ago, I joined our ecosystem development team, which I know you've, you've chatted with Ian Hathaway. So Ian joined our team and I got to work uh, with Ian, which was fantastic. And then what happened this last fall was I had been thinking that perhaps it was time for me to jump into my career as a coach. And so September 30th is when that opportunity rolled around. And I left Techstars after over six years with, with the company. And the decision for me was, I guess what I had to come to terms with was, what was my calling? And yeah, in the, in the eyes of a lot of people working to, for Techstars is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And it is. I really, really enjoyed my time with the company. But you reach a certain point where you know there's more for you and that it is time to go in a different direction and bring whatever it is that you were called to do, allow that to emerge into the world. So for me, yeah, it took a little while uh, to come to, to what that actually was. I'm now 45. So you know, it took me 45 years to, to come to my calling. But it was not difficult. When you meet, when you reach that moment of clarity, it just makes it 
it makes it so easy. I, and I know how hard it is to make the jump, especially if you're, if you're thinking about making the jump into entrepreneurship, you're working a full-time job, maybe you're a developer and you've got this side hustle. When do you make, you know, what's the right moment for you? All I can say is there is no metric. You just have to decide when it is right. When does it feel right for you? So you started Prairie Sattva. How did the conversation with your wife go when you said, okay, I'm doing this. I'm, I'm, I'm taking the leap. Yeah, that uh, I, I feel so fortunate that I have the spouse that I do. She has been along for this journey for so many years, you know, 27 years we've been together. The amount of love and support that I've felt from her all along this journey has been nothing short of a miracle. And so, you know, there were times in the past when I went into entrepreneurship that we were not in a good financial situation, but she trusted me. She knew that I was, you know, making the best decision that I could in the moment and supported me. So when it came to this, she knew that I'd been, I'd put a pretty close to two years worth of effort into making this moment happen. You know, obviously there's questions about income, but when I'm, when I'm able to show, you know, this is what I project, this is what, you know, how many clients I have right now, we're going to be fine. I also was very intentional about eliminating debt. We live a very frugal lifestyle. You know, it's kind of, we live in a very, very small house with a very small mortgage in a very cheap city. And I do that intentionally so that I am able to create these opportunities. So once I was able to alleviate, and she really didn't have a fear around finances. She was just more, she basically had good questions. And when I, when I was able to illustrate, here's what I project, here's where we're at right now. We won't even touch savings. That just, she was like, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're, you're very fortunate to have someone like that by your side. So that's right. very cool. Okay. So give me a bit more context on, on Prairie Sadba. Let's say I'm a founder or someone working with you. How's the process like? Yeah. It, you know, it's, if you peel back the, the curtain on coaching, it's really simple, right? It's talking about the situation you're going through, talking about what kind of outcomes you want to achieve, and then putting action items into place that work for you, that you can commit to, that are going to help you achieve those outcomes and goals. So that's, that's the basic structure. With me, there's, there is a layer of mindfulness, right? So making sure that you're very mindful of what you're doing, watching yourself in, in action. There's a big phase of self-observation here. A lot of times founders will come to me or leaders in organizations. They'll come to me knowing that something feels off, but they can't put their finger on it because they, 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 they know I'm not operating the way I need to. There's a lot of imposter syndrome, especially with first-time leaders what the hell am I doing? I'm faking this. And I'm someday I'm going to be exposed as a fraud. And that's terrifying. The thing is, is we're all imposters in some way. We're all making this up as we go. Some of us admit it and some of us hide it, right? Now, even though we're making it up on the go, doesn't mean we're an imposter. It just means we're figuring it out. We're all students. We're all learning. So they'll come to me oftentimes with a lack of confidence, feeling imposter syndrome. 
maybe their relationships there's there's tension there they don't know why they can't get along with their co-founder they don't know why they're struggling with their employees so we do that deep investigation into how is it what's your operating system what are you actually doing that's contributing to these conditions and let's correct correct behaviors when we can when we can figure it out so like you know i mentioned we we talk about situations what your the outcomes you want well you can only do that through this self observation process building awareness that's where mindfulness comes in are you aware of how you're thinking and feeling so let's get there let's build up that awareness and once people start to do that then it shifts into realizations right and i hear this all the time i'll work with somebody for 2 to 3 months and i can't do it for them right coaching is not me going do this do this do this i ask a lot of questions hopefully good questions at the right time so that the person can for themselves find those realizations and usually there's these this aha moment where they'll say i can't believe i didn't figure this out i can't believe i've been operating this way i've been stuck for so long and in just a couple of months of working with you like figured it out and and then in that moment there can be some negative self talk like oh i'm so stupid why didn't i figure this out why did it take working with you matt to figure it out the thing is is like we all need a mirror we need somebody that we can talk with that can reflect back what we're saying and what we're doing to help us see clearly we haven't been trained to figure this stuff out on our own it's just not part of you know who we are as humans so we need that support most especially leaders need that level of support in order to become a better human which leads to becoming a better leader is that where you have that quote from ramdas on your sort of homepage that says we're all just walking each other home yeah you know it took me a long time to really understand what that quote meant I had seen it for years. I had followed Ram Das and he he just passed away last year. And I was I always thought what what the hell is he talking about walk each other home. And then it finally hit me that really what we're doing is just helping each other discover who we are. You you need to come home to yourself. You need to come home to your authentic self, who you are. And you can only do that through the process of being vulnerable. of being open of doing you know one of my uh one of my heroes in the coaching world world is Jerry Colonna and you know he talks a lot about radical self inquiry taking that pause to do deep investigation into yourself because it will pay dividends if you don't do that and you continue to operate on your you know the the operating operating system you've cultivated over the years react with an autopilot mentality you're not going to get better and these problems aren't going to resolve themselves what advice do you have for founders ambitious startup employees or just investors who are struggling with mental health right now what i would say is you're not alone oftentimes when we're struggling with things like this we think we're the only ones that are going through it and the number one thing i can tell Uh, anyone is that you are not alone and that you deserve to heal you deserve to get help there's not something wrong with you right we are very quick if if somebody was to come up to me and say hey 
you know, I've got, I think I've got an issue with my kidney. Should I, you know, I, I'm going to go see the doctor. I'd say, yeah, like, duh, that makes sense. Go see a doctor, get healthy. We just haven't, we don't have that mechanism for mental health where we can talk, feel like we can talk openly about it and say, hey, you know, I have been, I think I've been depressed the last two months, right? And then get the support. The natural reaction should be, oh, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry to hear that. How can I, let's get you help. Let's get you connected to a therapist or to a psychiatrist. They can help you with this. You're going to be okay, right? So if you're struggling right now, I would, I would encourage you to get help as soon as possible. Don't do what I did. I waited two years. I self-medicated. I uh, convinced myself it was not mental. And what that actually it did more harm uh, than good. It caused me to actually take more years getting healthy. Had I had the awareness been there and I felt comfortable talking about it, I might have been able to get to a level of health that I feel right now in three to four months, maybe six months, instead of it taking three years, because that's how, how bad it got for me. So the earlier you can you know, recognize that there's a problem and reach out to somebody. And I know, you know one of the things working like I have around the world, some cultures, it's harder than others. There's uh, a really big stigma around it. In some countries, the laws aren't good. You know, if you talk to a therapist, they might talk to the government. That's all a challenge. So even if you have those challenges, there are online resources uh, that you can talk to that can help you through through the issues you're facing. Thank you so much, Matt. This has been a fascinating conversation. And definitely, I'm taking a lot home. So again, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was it was my pleasure. Hey, this is Gons again. If you enjoyed this episode of the CTL podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to SeatTable.com. SeatTable is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.